Good morning. Welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge. I'm Ted, one of the pastors. It's good to have you all here this morning. And of course, want to wish all the fathers out there a happy Father's Day. Also want to welcome, we have some special guests with us today, our friends from Judson Baptist up in Nashville have come to help us with our runners camp this week. They are on mission with us. So thank you to the folks from Judson. It's great to have you back again this year. We love our partners and we have many of them uh, that are connected to this church and what God is doing here. So, so thankful for them. Also, one quick housekeeping item. We have uh, printed our new notebooks for the fourth part of John's Gospel, which we've been studying since Advent. Uh, it's called I Am. And so there's some back there by the coffee and also on the, the door, or on the door, by the door on the way out. So pick those up. We will begin using these. Uh, actually, you'll begin using them this week in terms of your cell groups. And then next Sunday will be the first sermon from part four as we look at uh, John 11 and 12. So I wanted to let you all know about that. Today, though, we're going backwards in John. So please turn your Bibles to the very end of John chapter 7. Uh, you're, you're probably saying, hey, wait a minute, we finished chapter 10 last week. Why are we going back to John chapter 7? And that is because we skipped a passage. Maybe some of you realized it, maybe some of you did not. But when we uh, slowed down a little bit and we um, took shorter passages back in March, the way that it would have fallen was we would have preached uh, the woman caught in adultery on Easter. And so we decided to punt and do it on Father's Day instead. No. <laughs> Anyways, that's just how it, it worked out. So before we begin um, our fourth part of John's Gospel, we wanted to uh, come back and pick that passage uh, back up. And some of you may know about this passage. It's an interesting uh, passage. In fact, uh, the title screen's up there, and you can see we'll be there. And here, here is some, um, the results of my study this week. Um, as you know, this passage is questionable. The origin of it is questionable. Your Bibles will say that. And in fact, the title up there, it'll say something like that. The earliest manuscripts do not include John 753 to 811. So the question that enters your mind is, why is it in our Bible if there's some question? And that's what I'm going to share with you now. And again, this is just uh, the results of my study this week. I spent time with six great theologians who I love and respect. Uh, although not all of the beloved theologians agree, for the most part, this is kind of a consensus of how we should view this passage, how I view this passage as we approach it today. First and foremost, we know that John nor any of the authors of the other three Gospels wrote this passage. Okay, They did not write it. We also know that it was not part of the autographs of Scripture. That would be the original copies anywhere in the New Testament. So you're like, okay, then why are we even looking at it, right? Well, keep reading. This passage should be viewed, however, as an authentic story from the ministry of Christ that survived in some other oral or written form. And that's not too hard to believe. Those of you who are seminary students or have studied know that most scholars believe that there were other documents that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all shared and drew from, Q being uh, the one that they believe all three of those guys took from, also one called L and M. So that's not too hard to believe if you studied textual criticism. A um, little bit of history here. It's typically found in later manuscripts. So while it's not found in our oldest, most reliable Greek manuscripts in the New Testament, it is found in later ones. So therefore, 
Oh, and by the way, there's the purpose. That italicized statement up there is probably the most important thing you need to know as we look at this passage today. Scholars believe that it was inserted by a scribe at some point to illustrate the contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. If you remember back when we studied John 7 and 8, that was one large uh, event at the Feast of Booths where Jesus was teaching, and judgment was a continual theme uh, as Jesus, again, is being contrasted as the Son of God with the religious hypocrites, the, the Pharisees. And so this, many scholars believe, was put in, inserted as an illustration uh, to show that. Now, here's a, here's a true statement, too. This passage does present Jesus as well, the, as well the Pharisees in character, all right, in character, consistent with what we see of them throughout the four gospel accounts. So therefore, all that to say, it should be taught and applied as we would any other passage in the New Testament. So that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at this passage, uh, which I believe has some of the greatest most merciful statements from Jesus in this that are very applicable to our lives as his followers and maybe someone here today who doesn't even know the Lord. So we're going to look at that. One last quote from one of the guys I studied this week, which I think helps us in case I've confused you at all. George Beasley Murray says this, we may regard this story as one of those incidents in the life of our Lord that circulated in the primitive church and did not come to the notice of our evangelists, those are the gospel authors, it was saved from oblivion by some unknown Christian who wrote it down. And so as we approach this passage, let's look now at the big idea. This is kind of a sermon in a sentence that will guide our study today. Today, in the context of righteous judgment, we will see the sinful hypocrisy of the self-righteous contrasted with the mercy of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you again today. Thank you for the time of fellowship, the time of worship that we have already had to this point. It has already been a great morning. Thank you that we have friends in town who are leaving home and coming and sacrificing much to be on mission this week, runner's camp. We're excited about that opportunity. But today, as we approach this passage, we approach this short incident in the ministry of our Lord. Father, speak to us. Teach us. Open our hearts. Tread up the, the hardened ground of our hearts and plant your seeds and water seeds and do a work for your glory, both in the hearts of those of us who are already saved and need your continual instruction and admonishment and teaching, but also those in this room who don't know you, Lord, young and old alike. If there's someone here who doesn't know you, work in their heart, open their eyes. And as always, Lord, we want to pray for our youngest who are both in this room and next door, that you continue your work as they're learning too, your gospel work, to raise up the next generation of believers. Again, thank you for this time, Father. Be with us now as we look to your passage. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so the first half we're gonna read here, and you'll see the, uh, kind of the, the point here, this first half, the Pharisees pounce, okay? The Pharisees pounce. I asked uh, Jared if he would read that passage from Mark 12 specifically because it gives us the context from that testing period where the Pharisees and Sadducees were testing Jesus in that last week of ministry. This kind of falls into that. So let's read, starting in 753, and we'll read through to the first half of 
They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, "'Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say?' Well, this is, this, they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. We'll stop right there and make a few observations. Now, the first three verses, really, 753, as well as verses 1 and 2, those verses connect us to the context of whatever the original source was for this passage. We will never know what came before it. But that does not connect to chapters 7 and 8, which is the Feast of Booths. So everyone tracking with me? So if you just finished chapter eight, I'm sorry, chapter seven, Feast of Booths, that's not, those verses are not referring to that. It's referring to wherever it was taken out of, whatever the source was, where it was preserved before being inserted here in the Gospel of John. So that's important for us to see. Most scholars believe that if indeed this was a, an actual event in the life of Christ, it most likely happened during the Passion Week. So the very last week. In fact, some of the manuscripts that are found to contain it, most are John, somewhere in John 7 to 8, where we have it here, other places in John 7 through 8, but also after Luke 21 at the very end. It actually fits well there, but again, it wasn't there originally uh, as well. So uh, that's most likely where it took place. Again, in that testing where they were trying to test and discredit Jesus. That's important for today because that's what they're doing here. They're trying to discredit Jesus in front of those listening to him, the crowds who are coming to teach or, or learn from him as he teaches and learn the gospel. That's their sole focus. And if possible, get him to say something to where they can say, aha, we got you now, and bring him before the Sanhedrin to charge him and hopefully kill him. These guys want Jesus dead. They were murderers. And that is essentially the context of what's happening uh, in this passage. So uh, very important. So as we look now, verse 3 gives us the beginning of this controversy, this incident. If you can imagine, Jesus was sitting in one of the teaching pits that were common outside of the temple in the courts. It was very common for a rabbi to sit with a group of, of disciples and teach them. And that's what's happening. So he's seated, he's teaching them, and then they run up in a group with all this fury and excitement to bring this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery before him. And you can see, the author of this doesn't let us figure out. He, he, he or she, well, probably he, not a she, but he tells us in verse six, this was all to test him. This woman was a means to an end to their despicable plan. They had a bigger prize, a bigger fish to catch that day, and it was Jesus. Their goal was to put him on the horns of dilemma or between a rock and a hard place, thinking they would entrap him. But I think, friends, what is the most tragic thing about this is they were banking on the fact that Jesus, based on what they had heard him teach before, that Jesus would be lenient to the woman, right? Let's think about it for a moment. What were Jesus' options here? Two primary options. He could either A, uphold the law of Moses and say, yeah, she's guilty, stoner. But that, that would be 
horrible, right? If he did that, first of all, his followers would see a contradiction between his teaching that they had been listening to for some time now. That's not gracious. That's not merciful. And then if he did that also, you know these Pharisees would go to Pilate and say, hey, this teacher just told us to kill somebody, right? That's sedition because only Rome has authority to execute. But if Jesus said, uh, no, we need to not stone her and let her off, then they could charge him with contradicting Moses. Because it is true. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, if you go and look, I believe it's Deuteronomy 22, you'll see it. A woman who, and a man who was caught in adultery were to be executed. And by the way, question here, who's missing from this whole event? Anyone notice that? Who's missing? The man. There should be a clue there for us that something fishy is going on. Because according to the law, both the man and the woman caught were to be brought before the people and to be stoned. And we'll get to this here in a moment, but Deuteronomy 13 and 17, it says the order, the witnesses, those who actually witness the sin were to be the first to cast the stone. And then everyone else was to follow and cast their stone. So something fishy going on with the fact the man is not here. We could, we could talk about why, uh, one, he was fleet of feet, right? Runner's camp coming up. He was fast, right? He was a little bit faster than a woman. He got out of there. Or what a lot of scholars actually believe, which really makes this plan of the Pharisees even more dastardly, was that this was a setup all along. And they had made special provision for the man. But what it definitely reveals is something we've learned in other parts of the gospel is there was a high level of chauvinism going on in this time. In fact, in the first century, if a woman committed adultery, if she wasn't stoned, she would live essentially like with the scarlet letter. And she would be an outcast for the rest of her life, treated horribly. And that's if she survived. Men, on the other hand, uh, it wasn't a good thing. There would be some shame involved, but in time it would be forgotten, and they could get back to their pursuit of business and placement within society. So a double standard for sure is happening, just as we've seen and talked about in other parts of the Bible. But back to Jesus. What was he going to do? Now, I love this because, well, actually, I'm going to save this for the next part. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let's come back to what I think is the most tragic aspect of this story is that the Pharisees knew about grace. They knew about mercy. They knew about forgiveness. They were banking on those very things from Jesus. And I think that's the most tragic part of this. They, at some level, although they didn't understand salvifically, they, they were banking on the attributes of the gospel to entrap Jesus. They were more consumed with murdering him and hoping that indeed he would, he would err on the side of what he's been teaching this whole time. Grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And then, then they would have him. So we see, see them with the question, what do you say? They, there it is, the rock in a hard place. You is emphatic there. And again, it's a complete setup. They did this to test him, that they could bring a charge Against them. Now, before we get to what Jesus does, which I think is a really exciting part, um, my favorite part of this passage, let's look at a few application points uh, for us today. First, this passage does reveal to us the depths of human depravity. We believe in the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean that every human is as evil as they can be, but it means that we do have the potential 
to act in such a way to be totally deprived because we're born wretched. We're born sinful, right? Not good, not even neutral. We're born sinful. Romans 3, you can read it. No one is good, no not one. And here we see that. And it would be so easy for us to stand in judgment of the Pharisees and the scribes coming before Jesus. You see, on this day, the, the, the sin that is so heinous is not the woman's. It's the scribes and the Pharisees, especially if they were involved in setting up this act of adultery so that they then could have somebody. But again, they're using this woman as a means to an end. She's a throwaway life to them, all with the hopes of trying to catch Jesus. But let's hold off on passing judgment and instead turn your Bibles with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 2. This is a great opportunity for us who are in Christ to be reminded of the fact that God saved us. If you're a Christian today, God saved you and I out of the same despicable, wicked sinfulness that we see here before us with the Pharisees. And if you're not a believer, this is a great opportunity to have the gospel shared with you. Look at verse 1, and let's just walk through this and remember who we once were and how gracious our God is to save us. Look what Paul writes. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among you we all once lived in the passions, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a picture of every single one of us from birth. And either if you're not a believer, you're still there. If you are, praise God, go back up to verse 1, you were, past tense. Isn't God amazing? And then verse 4. Aren't you glad for verse 4? Aren't you glad for the buts in the New Testament? Because something good always comes. It's my favorite word in the New Testament. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. A gift. We can never forget that. If you're in Christ each and every day, we have to remember it's a gift. There's nothing special about any of us who are saved. It's all a gift from God. And if we forget that, we will eventually end up like the Pharisees and the scribes. So important for us to remember that. And one of the things I like to remind myself, one thing I say to myself to do that each day, especially when I find myself wanting to judge someone in sin, especially a lost person, and which is easy to do today with all that's happening in our society, I say to myself, if not for the grace of God, there go I. So I'm giving that to you. If you don't you do that, practice that. Keep your heart tender to the wretched because you and I were once them. And if not for God's grace, we still would be. We still would be. Second application uh, for us and you'll see this up on the screen. These are three things that you can do, that you and I can do, to help combat the opportunity for this blind hypocrisy to take place in our life, right? First and foremost, daily Bible intake. Again, we're not legalists, but the fact is we need God's word every day. And the reason, one of the reasons is, it's a mirror. It's a mirror to the soul. 
God, of course, uses it to save us, but he uses it also to keep ourselves very aware of who we are. And so if there is sin happening in our life, if there is hypocrisy, we're going to see it in this, in this Bible. And in fact, if you're a Christian and you don't like to read it, there's probably some bad stuff going on. Come and talk to us. We do counseling here as well. We want to help you get out of the ditch. But being God's word is so important. Also, daily inventory and confession of sin, right? Uh, think of what the things you did from the day before or whatever, uh, specifically, and come before God, come before the Lord and ask forgiveness. So important. And of course, we know we're already forgiven. It's as if it never happened. But if we, if we presume upon the grace of God, like Paul warns us again, I think in Romans 6, we'll end up in this place of blind hypocrisy. So daily confession and inventory. And inventory is important because of number three. We need regular accountability with another believer, at least one other believer in our life that weekly we're spending time with. And if obviously if we're writing some stuff down or taking inventory, we know what to ask them to hold us accountable with and vice versa. So just some great things that have been helpful for me that I still need regularly as well. So I wanted to share those with you. And then finally, there's one great Christmas character that always gets overlooked during Christmas. So we're going to appreciate him today, and that's Joseph. All right? And the reason is this. Because also in Deuteronomy, not only is a woman and a man caught in adultery to be killed, but a betrothed woman, so uh, a woman who is engaged, and presumably a man, um, were to be killed as well. So Joseph, if he had followed the law, would have had Mary stoned. And so I just think it's a great opportunity for us to appreciate Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, and the kind of man he was. And Matthew helps us do that up on the screen in chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, act of marriage, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What a great guy he is. And we should be thankful for him as well. So we've seen the Pharisees pounce. Now we're going to see the second part of this passage. We're going to see how Jesus responds. And he responds with style. It's just, I don't know how else to describe it. It's, it's God. He just, he's incredible. He's incredible. So let's pick back up in verse 6, halfway through verse 6, and read uh, the rest of the passage. And uh, as you're seeing, I'm turning back to John 8. So if you haven't done that yet, go ahead. I'm a little bit late. So picking up in verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. In this second part of the passage, we're going to see, we just saw, but we'll talk about them here in a moment, four merciful statements by our Lord. Now, just picture the scene again. This is what I love. Let me borrow one of these stools here. Remember, he's seated, just like a, a rabbi would be. He's seated and he's teaching. And, and for centuries, people have wondered, and still do, I wonder, what was it that Jesus was writing in the sand? And we'll talk about that here in a moment. But what's more important than what he wrote is his posture, 
right? We communicate non-verbally, and that speaks louder even than our words. So imagine Jesus is sitting here, he's teaching. These guys come running up with all this excitement and fury. Have you ever been there when someone has accused you? What does it do? It makes your heart rate, fight or flight. You want to defend yourself, you're back on your heels. Does Jesus do any of that? He doesn't even get up. He actually ignores them and starts writing in the sand. Have you done that where where you're trying to tell someone something important and they don't even look at you? They don't even make eye contact? It kind of takes away some of your your energy and it makes you stutter a little bit and slow down. He's not even giving them the time of day. He's completely ignoring them, right? He's not about to be put. Raise your hand if you think Jesus is about to be put between a rock and a hard place. Uh Uh-uh. You don't put the Lord of glory between the rock and a hard place. Now, what is he writing? We don't know. Uh, the, one of the, the most common traditions is that he's writing the names of all of these men who are, who are coming, and that comes from Jeremiah 17.3. You'll see it up on the screen. If you've read Jeremiah, you know the religious leaders he dealt with in Jerusalem were even worse than the Pharisees and the scribes here. And this is where the Lord speaks through Jeremiah. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So that's been probably one of the, a lot of theories, probably the most common throughout church history. Very possible. Uh, he could have even just written a reference to Jeremiah 17.3, and, and some of these Pharisees and scribes would have gotten it. Uh, very similarly, you might remember Jesus, Jesus referenced Psalm 22 on the cross where he says, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that was, that was happening, right? He was experiencing that uh, from God as he became the embodiment of sin. But, but he's also referencing Psalm 22 there because Psalm 22 contains a description of crucifixion, a prophetic description through David. So he's referencing that, bookmarking it, so they knew what was happening. So very possible. Um, who knows? I, I even thought, well, maybe it's, uh, you know, remember the disembodied hand in Daniel 5, the writing on the wall? Maybe Jesus is writing those Hebrew words, especially that middle one, tekel, right? You have been weighed, you have been measured, you have been found wanting. Could have been that, but again, we'll move on from that because I think the, the, the nonverbal, the body language is so much more important. And the reason is, look at verse 7. The tense of the verb in here where it says, and as they continued, tells us that they kept asking and asking and asking Jesus to give them an answer, and he wouldn't do it at first. He was ignoring them. And that's why I think we, can, we, we should see that as the most important thing were his actions. But finally, he stands up from the, from the bent-over seated position, and he says this first and, yes, very merciful statement to these Pharisees. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, the key word in understanding that is the word first, because that tells us he's referring back to that passage I mentioned earlier in Deuteronomy 13 and 17, which was that the witnesses were to throw the first stone. So scholars believe he's talking primarily to those in the group who witness this act of adultery. Now, when I, every time I've read this, I always think in terms of, again, total depravity, right? The idea that at that moment in time, Jesus was the only person on the planet that was without sin and had a right to throw a stone. That's kind of how I've always read it. But scholars say, no, that's not what he's saying. He's not, he's not saying that you had to be without sin across the board to throw the first stone. He's not even saying that you had to be without ever committing a sexual sin. He's saying specifically, he who is not connected to the exact sin 
they're charging her with, the sin of adultery. That's what he's talking about. So there's a couple ways to look at this. Those men, had they ever committed adultery? Or maybe they were secretly in the act of adultery at that time. That was very possible. Apparently, again, there was a double standard back then. And much like the medieval popes and bishops and cardinals, some of these Pharisees may have been having something secret going on on the side. But another way to look at it is this. If these guys witnessed the act of adultery, that means they watched it, they let it happen, and they shared in the guilt as well. So he speaks to the witnesses here, who probably we should associate with the older ones. But what's so amazing is the power of this statement to pierce the hearts of each and every one of those scribes and Pharisees. In John, we've seen a plethora of incredible miracles, right? Water to wine, the feeding of 6,000, the blind man, the lame man being healed. Soon, starting next week, we'll get into Lazarus, the greatest of his miracles on earth before the resurrection. But don't miss the miracle here. I counted 17 words, one sentence. And with that one word, all of those men went from thinking about her sin and their desire to kill Jesus to now thinking about their own sin. And as they started to, their conscience started to convict them of their own sin and hypocrisy, their grip loosened. And the stone fell out. One by one, they leave. The older ones first, again, probably the witnesses. And then the younger ones, hey, if the witness doesn't throw the first stone, then they've got to go too. And they all walk away. That, my friends, is one of the most powerful demonstrations of the power of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. To pierce the heart like that. Incredible. Did Jesus... Throw away the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery? No. Did he condone the woman's sin? No. Did he uh, violate Deuteronomy and Leviticus with the punishment that should be executed? No, he even said stoner, right? He gave him permission to stoner in a way. They couldn't get him. He's amazing. It's, that statement alone is why scholars believe this is an, an actual legitimate story from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I wish we could spend some more time. It is, it is incredible. I just don't want you to miss the power in that. And then verse 8 is like the ultimate mic drop, right? He just sits back down and starts writing in the sand again. Just doesn't even watch him leave because he knew what was about to happen. And then we see him address the woman for the very first time. And here we see the second. And by the way, the reason I, I say that that first statement was merciful, any time that a person, a sinner, can see their sin, it is grace. I'd like to think that some of those Pharisees and scribes went on to become believers and followers because the lights just came on for the first time. They started to see the bad news. And as one who's been saved as an adult myself, I can tell you that that I saw the bad news of who I was before uh, I read the Gospels and was saved by grace. But I was, that was all part of it, was grace. And so that's why I say that it was very merciful. Second thing we see here is what he says to the woman. He says, woman, and that's not derogatory like it would be today. Uh, it was a common address. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then, of course, she answers, no, sir, no one. Now, condemn there is an is a actual uh, judicial term from the first century. So it meant to pass sentence. So, so in, in many ways, this is a courtroom 
seen. And he wanted to see the, he wanted the woman to see. This is why it's gracious and merciful. He wanted the woman to see what he had done for her, right? What he had done for her uh, so that she could appreciate it. And then we see the third statement, neither do I condemn you. That's what the Pharisees and scribes were hoping to get from Jesus from the very beginning. That's what they wanted to, him to do, right? So they could pounce on him and, and, and charge him. And here he says it to her. Was she still guilty of adultery? Yep, she was. But here we see the nature of Jesus's first advent in his gospel ministry, which is to seek and save the lost. And if we need a reminder, I'll give you one up on the screen from earlier in John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then here, verse 17, which I really wanted us to see. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And if you keep reading, you'll see that we're actually already condemned already from birth. But he did not come to condemn. He came to save. Now, we don't know what happened to this woman. We don't know if she went on to become a believer in Christ. But we see him also give her a very important set of instructions, which is that fourth, very merciful, gracious statement. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, we don't see any evidence of repentance or faith, so at this point, uh, we don't know where she is or, or, or whether she gets saved. We, we shouldn't see that here. It's very similar to uh, John 5 with the healing of the lame man, where he said, hey, don't go sin or, or something worse will happen to you, right? Very similar to that. But I'd like to think, of course, that she came to faith in Christ as well. So few application points for us, what we can take away from this passage uh, before we leave here today. First, just to connect to some other scripture passages, like the prodigal son, you know that passage, that parable? Just as the father forgave the prodigal son, very similarly, Jesus uh, forgives and does not condemn the prodigal woman. Also, this is the height of contrast. If you remember what we learned in John chapter 10 about the, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, And the bad shepherds, according to Ezekiel 34, you see that contrast between how Jesus is. This is how the Pharisees and scribes should have been ministering and leading the people of Jerusalem, but they were not. So for us here, one of the things that this passage helps us to remember is that if you're in Christ, you too have no condemnation. Let's let's read Romans 8, 1 through 2, which is where we should go at this point. Paul says there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And I think one of the most uh, difficult things for us, and this was common for me and I think many of us struggle with, is for those of us who are saved, when we sin, we're the ones that pick up the stones. We're the ones that won't let go of the guilt. And and if you're anything like me, that's what I struggled with. When I would blow it again, I would beat myself up so long with that guilt and the guilt. And one of the things that God taught me, and he taught me this as I was counseling others and, of course, reflective counseling myself, is that in those moments when I sin, I forget the gospel. And I've talked to you all about this before. I think it's an important application point to keep coming back to, is we need to learn to have faith in the very grace we say we believe in. Because if the gospel is true, 
When I get back up from my knees after asking forgiveness for that sin, it's as if it never happened. That's what the gospel says. And yet here I am, who am I? Here I am beating myself up with guilt as if my standards are higher than the God of glory who has forgiven me and washed it away the east to the west, right? We need to learn to have faith in grace. So, so friends, when you blow it again, which will probably be today or tomorrow if you're anything like me, and you come before God and ask for forgiveness, which is right to do, when you get back up, it's as if it never happened. And I actually started doing this years ago, and it's actually a habit change. You have to develop a habit of this in your thinking. But what I learned was my guilt actually helped to perpetuate repeated sin. And when I started applying to the gospel, the gospel to my, myself in those moments, when I started having faith and grace, the temptation to sin again actually got weaker and eventually lost its power. Our guilt actually perpetuates repeated sin. Try it, and you will see. You will have freedom without violating what Paul warns us about, presuming upon the grace. Again, if you're, if you're saying, oh, God's going to forgive me, I'm going to go do that, you're probably not saved. Come and talk to me. I want to share the gospel with you. That's not what we're talking about, but learning to have faith and grace. Because when we sin and we come before God repentant, we too need to hear exactly what this woman said. Neither do I condemn you. For us, it's greater, of course, because we're in Christ. And then, of course, go and sin no more. We'll never be sinless on this side of glory, but we can sin less with the help of God's Spirit and the help of His Word, actually taking these passages and putting them into action daily. So important. Finally, last application point, we can't leave here without talking about evangelism, okay? When you share the gospel, the reality is that a lot of the people we share the gospel with, especially here in the South, can be just as prideful and blind and hypocritical as the Pharisees we see in our passage today. And when people are in that self-righteous blind state, it's good not to start with the good news, but actually the bad news. We've learned, uh, back in my old church, we had a ministry downtown, and we used the way of the master. It is a good tool. There's a lot of good evangelism tools. And as an evangelist, you need to get as many tools as you can in your belt. But for the self-righteous, especially atheist types and agnostics, the the way the master is really good because it uses the Ten Commandments to help bring about the recognition of sin. It's based on the old uh, premise, law to the proud, grace to the humble. And then as God's law softens them up, then you bring grace in. Then you bring the good news in and share with them Christ. So very important. We can learn that from here because I think Jesus does a little bit of that. Of course, he is the master at evangelism, but he does a little bit of that here as well. And then finally, with evangelism, we need to remember too, with all these great miracles, the one that we saw here today, again, miracles still happen. But the one we saw Jesus perform here, he still is doing through his spirit, which is piercing the hearts and the consciences of men and women. Ray Comfort tells us that the conscience is actually like an inner lawyer. It's our inner lawyer. And for you as an evangelist, it's actually an ally that you have inside the lost person you're sharing with. So use God's law and God's word to help prick that and penetrate that and pierce it because God's still doing that today, hopefully even in this room penetrating consciences and bringing about the knowledge of salvation. So, so important. And again, just remember, it is a miracle. 
Salvation is a miracle. Grace has been cheapened in our churches for the last several decades, and we, we can't give in to that. We have to hold out, take them to the cross, but be careful not to give them some work accidentally that will make them a false convert, like a prayer or the raising of a hand or the walking of an aisle. Those things don't save. Only God saves. And it is the greatest miracle that he is performing even today. Again, thank you all for being here. And if there's any question to where you are with Christ, please come and talk to one of us. The invitation is always open here at the Church of Blue Ridge, both this morning and through the week. Come and grab one of us. Uh, Call us later today. Even though it's Father's Day, give me a call. We want to share the gospel with you. We want to hear from you and uh, and present Christ uh, to you. So again, thanks for being here. Uh, The band's going to come back up. We're going to continue worshiping. We've got one more song. Let me pray for us uh, as we get back to that part of the service. Father, we thank you for this look at this great passage. Thank you for the mercy and grace that you have shown us in and through Jesus Christ as we walk out of here today, twofold prayer, Lord. We could, we could pray a lot more from this passage, but twofold prayer. Let us, who are yours, never forget. Not one day go by where we forget the grace that surrounds our salvation. Let us not think for a minute that we had anything to do with this or that, that there's anything special about us. It's all your grace, it's all your mercy. Let us not take for granted what you have done and given to us. And then secondly, from that, be motivated to take this good news and share it with our neighbors. Share it with those you've put around us in our circles. Father, let us share it with them. And remember, if not for that grace, we would be just as sinful still as those whom we're sharing. Break our hearts for the lost people, regardless of all their warts, regardless of all the evil that surrounds them. Break our hearts for the lost in our community and around the world and give each of us an opportunity, even this week, to share your glorious gospel with a lost person in our path. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that for those of us who are in Christ, we can walk out of here today hearing those words, neither do I condemn you. It's in your holy name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.